Well, amen. I want to say a special welcome to friends and family, maybe visiting for uh, Thanksgiving holidays. We appreciate you being here, whether you're participating in worship uh, from this room or participating from the atrium or the uh, hearth room. Uh, it's just awesome to worship together. And that song we just sang comes word for word out of the passage we're studying today, Isaiah 53. So you just sang God's promises. If you haven't been with us, we've been in a series called Isaiah. He's a prophet living around 500 B.C. The people are about to go through a difficult time, and he's giving specific predictions about the future. And Isaiah is considered a mini-Bible, even though it's written 500 B.C., because it mirrors the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. It's got an early section that's 39 chapters long, just like there are 39 books in the Old Testament. It's got another section that's 24 chapters long, just like there are 24 books in the New Testament. When you divide that part in half, you're going to see it divides up very similar to the themes of the Old and New Testament. Old Testament, as we've been learning together for the last couple of weeks, a lot of bad news, more bad news, more bad news. You get to these chapters for the next couple of weeks, it's more good news and more good news and more good news. Old Testament focused on human activity. Now we're talking about God does divine activity. Old Testament about sin and retribution. Next part, salvation and redemption. Justice and now mercy. Confronting, now comforting. The God of Israel, now the God of the universe. Really emphasizing that everyone is welcome. The Jewish God coming through the Jewish people, but open to all people of all times. God is a fire in the first section. God is a father in the second section. First section is a strange work. God's going to somehow work through the judgment of Babylon. Now there's good tidings of great joy pointing to Christmas and Easter. Lastly, the focus again moving from Jews to Gentiles and Jews in the second section. And remember, I still this, this country called Babylon is going to come in and conquer the Jews. So the first section's really prophesied before that happens, pre-exile. And the section we're reading now is about post-exile. As we've gone through this series, we've called this Isaiah's comforter. Because when we see that God can predict the future and God has a plan, there's so many ways in which it can comfort us. And the image we're looking at in our comforter today is that he's going to present the Messiah, what he names him as the servant of God, as a suffering servant. Hundreds of years before the Romans invent crucifixion, he's going to describe something that sounds an awful lot like crucifixion. And in this series... We've been learning all kinds of images. We've learned that Christmas time, a virgin will be a child, a child will be given. We've learned that child will eventually come and die for you and for me. We learned that he's a lifesaver, that he comes to save us. We learned that he's a fire. We, we learned that he's a, a coal that can cleanse us. These are all the promises we've been examining over the last seven weeks, ten weeks together. So we head into Christmas, the last couple ones at the bottom. What does it mean that he's good news? And I want you to know that when God puts together comfort, as we saw in chapter 40, God doesn't go cheap. God provides and uses a very high thread count to provide this comfort for us. And the predictions he makes and the promises he makes, he is making a very, very high thread count to give you proof, literal, historic proof that Jesus is both the servant he predicted and the sacrifice that God's been looking for in a way that you and I can examine it. 
So we're not going to remember all these threads. I would just remember that this is a high thread count. We're going to weave together six different threads in these specific predictions today. Let's look at the first thread as he's describing this servant of God that's going to come for you and I. The first thing he mentions is that this servant will be a sprinkling servant. What's that mean? Well, I'm going to give you this phrase here. It's going to be a mouthful, and then it will kind of become clear as we go. His first point is that this servant is going to be a sprinkling servant. And it's going to be to all nations, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And it's going to make people's jaws drop. That's not what I thought God was going to do. When they realize they totally misunderstood God's original plan. He's going to say all that starting in chapter 52. Behold, my servant, the one I'm sending to earth, my big plan, he's going to deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and on high. Which you're thinking, yeah, military leader. Let's defeat the Babylonians. Let's defeat the bad guys. That's what we're looking for, high and extolled. Just as many were astonished at you. Okay, we're going to be astonished by this, jaw-dropping, yeah. Just as many were astonished at you, his visage, his face, was marred more than any man. And his form, his body, was marred more than the sons of men. Every instance of history of torture on human beings that you've ever seen, this servant is going to be marred in face, in body, in a way that is unrecognizable of all the inhumane people and inhumane things humans have ever done to each other. It will be the worst you've ever seen. That's not really what we're looking for. We're looking for a general here. Hello, we're looking for a political leader. But because of his marring and because of the crushing of his body, He's going to sprinkle. That's weird. We'll come back to that. Many nations, Jews and Gentiles, kings are going to shut their mouth at him. Kings have always seen kings who are willing to sacrifice their servants for the sake of the kings. But you know what they've never seen? A king willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his servants. They're jaw-dropped at this. What kind of a king is this? For what had been not been told them, they will see. That's not what we thought. They're suddenly going to see. This mission that they didn't understand. That they had not heard, they will consider. God's not coming like we thought he would. And come back to the word sprinkle. So if you're Jewish, sprinkling was a major part of forgiveness. So you would take a a, a lamb or a goat or a bull, and the high priest would take something that was perfect and innocent, died, so that you could have forgiveness. It was a way of understanding the cost of your wrongdoing, but also that God made a way that you could be in his space. It's called sacred space. So the priest would take the blood and would sprinkle it as a way of sanctifying or cleansing yourself so you could enter into sacred space. Then often it would be poured on this section of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. And it's like God's judgment was coming down from the angel's wings and that blood absorbed God's judgment so that you could be free. You could live guilt-free and condemnation-free. You could live at peace with God. Because of the sprinkling and the cleansing. So saying this servant is going to be so marred like a sacrifice, but his blood is going to be for the forgiveness of all nations. He's not only going to be the sprinkling servant, he's also going to be the rejected servant. And this is so crazy. God is going to send his Messiah, his servant, to his people, and one of the next threads he puts together is, and they're going to reject him. No, 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 we're waiting for him. No, you say you're waiting for him, but when he gets there, you so misunderstand, you're going to reject him. No, we're not. Yes, you are. No, we're not. Yes, you are. Here's what happens. 
Isaiah says in 53, who's going to believe our report? You're not going to believe it's going to happen. For to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God has revealed his power, but he's going to reveal his power in this crazy way through this crazy servant. And he, the servant, is going to grow up. All right, so it must be a human being that grows, but something grows up. Then he switches to a metaphor and says he's going to grow up before him like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, the word he uses here is really interesting. He uses the word sheresh. So it's going to grow, but he uses the idea that you took a non-indigenous plant from some other culture, some other place, some other world, and you planted it here in this dry dirt of Israel, and it's going to grow and flourish. You would not expect a non-indigenous plant from a far-off land, far-off territory to grow here. It's going to grow here, a different kingdom in a different place, growing in this place. If you're a sci-fi fan like me, imagine you're in some sci-fi movie and you head over to some other planet and you find some crazy alien plant. Like, wow, that's cool. I've never seen anything like that on Earth. So you take this crazy plant from a far-off country and a far-off world that's not our own and you bring it back and plant it in your backyard and you're like, holy cow, we got like Mars juice going on here. Look at this. We got like a Neptune plant growing in my backyard. Come see this. You can't believe that this foreign plant is growing in your yard. Or maybe a little more indigenous, you go down to Florida. You grab yourself an orange plant. And you take it and put it right in the middle of the desert in Israel. You're like, well, that thing's going to die. And you find out that this non-indigenous plant is flourishing. It's growing. It's providing nourishment Everything you need that you've never seen grow in this territory. That's the idea. That this plant person from a different land, a different territory, a different world will be planted here in Israel. And it's going to grow up with a new kingdom and new priorities. That's what you're looking for. Well, that sounds pretty good. And then he goes on to say, and you're going to reject it. No, no, we're not. Yeah, yeah, you are. Here's how he says it. He, the servant, there's nothing about his form. Nothing about how he looks or comeliness that we would see him. So whenever you see the Jesus film or see the chosen, which I love, whenever you see a good-looking, handsome Jesus, you can know for sure that's not what Jesus looked like. Because it says there's nothing about his form, nothing about his external appearance. He was as plain Jane as it comes. Nothing about him. He goes on to say, there is no beauty well, that's kind of a mean thing to say about your son. Have you seen my son? Yeah, he's ugly. <laughs> no beauty. Not one thing beautiful about him. Well, thanks, Dad. But he's saying in a culture that's obsessed with beauty and externals, there is nothing about his externals that are going to draw you to him. You couldn't pick Jesus out of a crowd by his externals. Everything about his beauty, everything about his authority is going to flow from the inside out. Nothing about his beauty that, you'd, that you would desire him. And he who looks plain Jane as can be, will be despised and rejected by men. No, no, this is your plan. Yep, and he's going to be rejected. He's going to be a man of sorrows. You, you mean a military leader? No, I mean a man of sorrows. He's going to be acquainted with grief and loss. And we hid, as it were, our faces. When we see how marred he is, when we see how rejected he is, we are going to like cover our face. It's like we've never seen a human being so distorted as what's going to happen to the servant. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. You're not going to recognize this because you got such a vision of what you think God's going to do as a political leader. It's going to be far different. 
reminds me, I took my son Javen years ago and we went to uh, LA. I was doing a, a TV show out there to promote my book. And we're out there, we met this guy, and at first glance, I thought he was a homeless guy. So I'm kind of reaching in my wallet, I'm going to pick out a few dollars, give him some dinner. And so we meet up with him, and so here he is, and so we took a picture with this guy. And does anybody recognize him? This was not a homeless man. So as we're chatting with him, all of a sudden, he pulls off his hat. And I realize this is not a homeless man. I didn't recognize him. There was nothing about him that made him recognizable, except when he took that hat off, I realized it was B.A. Baracus, Mr. T., I didn't reckon. It's like my, my 80s hero. Oh, my goodness. And, and he carries with him a box of little Mr. T keychains. And he gave me one. For the next three years, I drove my family crazy. Hey, guys, look at this. Pay the fool. Pay the fool. Pay the fool. <laughs> Murdoch ain't going to get me on no plane. Murdoch ain't going to get me on no plane. Murdoch, I mean, I drove everybody crazy. So either the battery died or my wife threw it away. We're not sure exactly. <laughs> I am in the presence of a celebrity. I'm in the presence of a guy who took on Rocky Balboa, right? I'm in the presence of B.A. Baracus from the A-Team who could build anything out of anything. And yet I didn't recognize him at first glance. Messiah, who's going to step in the ring with death itself, and you're not going to recognize him. The celebrity of history that God has predicted, and you're not going to accept him. You're going to reject him and despise him. Sounds like exactly what happened to Jesus in 30 AD. A sprinkling servant and a rejected servant. He goes on, third thread. He's a beaten servant. Again, just crazier and crazier. A beaten servant who God will hurt to heal us. Now, while that may sound initially crazy, that's what offerings always did. Some animal who had not done anything wrong, who was as close to perfect as you can get, would be hurt, die, so his blood could heal or cover your wrongdoing. This is all consistent with everything God's ever done. Here's how he says it. Surely he, the servant, has borne our griefs. He didn't do anything wrong. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him, yet we esteemed him, we saw him, we recognized him as stricken, smitten. Who's he smitten by? The Romans? Did the Romans kill him? Did the Jews kill him? No. He's smitten by God. God killed Jesus. Well, why is God killing his son Jesus? He's afflicted. See, he was wounded for, here it comes again, our transgressions. He's wounded and bruised for our iniquities, which is another name for wrongdoing. The chastisement, the beating, the scourging, so that we could have peace was upon him. The word peace means shalom. God knew that by, by having his son, like those lambs, die and be beaten, it would allow his whole family of rebellious human beings to get adopted back into God's family. So it didn't please him to see his son tortured, but it pleased him to see that because of this torture, he would cover all the wrongdoing of all people of all times, and it gave a chance for everybody he ever made to be adopted. That's why it pleased him to hurt him. So that you and I could have peace with God. And by his stripes, and again, Romans haven't even invented crucifixion. Roman as a nation is not, not, even, not even in the distant future. And we see someone who's striped and marred and mangled. Now, over the years, I've brought in several spiritual leaders from other 
backgrounds, you know, Hindus, uh, Jewish rabbis. One of the guys I brought in several times is Majad Dabdu, who works with the Islamic community. He's a Muslim. And so we brought him on stage at our exploring service and just had us ask questions. Why are you a Muslim? Why are you a Christian? Why do you think Muhammad is the representative of God? Why do you think Jesus is the representative of God? And we just had a lot of great dialogue on the stark differences between Christianity and, and the Quran and the Muslim world. Yeah, it was a very respectful dialogue. In fact, one of my caregivers right now with Quinn is, is a Muslim, and so we get into lots of great conversations. And one thing she said recently in one of our conversations was, well, Chad, I think it's just like, you know, Christianity, Islam, I think it's the same God, different fonts. I said, well, I really like the idea of that. I like the idea of us working together and being kind and everybody's made in God's image. But I'm not sure it's just same God, different font, because it's fundamentally different description of God and a fundamentally different description of what's important. In Christianity, as you're seeing here in Isaiah, it is all about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Quran says it didn't happen. Now, Islam loves Jesus. He was a virgin birth. He was a prophet. He's coming again for a return. He did lots of miracles. But God would never, Allah would never allow a prophet to be crucified. Here's what it says in the Quran. Those Christians are saying that we've killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of God. In fact, they did not kill him. So no one killed Jesus is what the Quran's saying. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. It appeared to them as if he did. It's kind of a lookalike Jesus. They got mixed up. The Christians got a little mixed up. They mixed up the wrong guy. Lots of people crucified in the Roman Empire. It appeared to them as if they did. Indeed, those who differ about him are in doubt about it. Even today, there's only a few Christians who believe he's really crucified. So I talked to Majad, and I said, talk to my friend. I said, you know, this is not a description of, his, of philosophy or religion. This is a description of history. Either Jesus was crucified or he wasn't. One book says he wasn't. Another book, he says he was. You can believe whatever you want. But let's see what the evidence shows. And we have evidence from Roman historians, Jewish historians, who don't even believe in Jesus, who said that Jesus Christ was crucified around 30 AD. Just like Isaiah predicted. He's beaten on our behalf. That's why Christianity offers not just religion or philosophy, it offers history. You can know for sure this is true. You can check the facts. She moves to the next thread he weaves. Besides being beaten, he's going to be silent. <laughs> like if, you, if you were making up these predictions, you'd say, you know, I think we're going to talk about the fact he's going to be quiet. I mean, it's just such a weird prediction. So he says the next thing you're going to realize is he's a silent servant. Here's how he says it. He is going to be a silent servant that's going to bore or bear or carry our iniquity, our wrongdoing, everything we've ever done, every thought, everything. Here's the problem in human hearts, he says. We, like sheep, always wander off. We go astray. We have turned, every one of us, to your own way. The Lord took all that self-centeredness, all that waywardness, all that my way or the highway, all that I know better than you and better than God had run the universe, and God laid all of that on him, the iniquity of us all. He's, he's bearing all of it for everybody. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, just like all the other threads. Yet, here's a new piece, he opened not his mouth. Like when I'm oppressed even a little bit, hey, God, I don't deserve this. Hey, I'm a good guy. Look at all the good things I've done here. Look, I did this and this and this. I don't deserve this. That's what I do when I'm mad, when I don't like my circumstances. He kept his mouth shut. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. 
And as a sheep before the shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. We come to the New Testament, an incredibly powerful uh, Roman leader named Pontius Pilate. We've got archaeological evidence for him as well. We found that over in Caesarea Maritime in the 1940s. And here's what Pilate says. He's talking to Jesus. Do you not know that I'm in charge? Do you not know that I'm powerful enough to let you go? Everybody who's ever stood before Pontius Pilate has begged for their life. Please, 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 let me out of here. Pontius Pilate says, do you not know how many things they testify against you? Are you not hearing what they're saying? And Pontius Pilate, who's had thousands of people before him, realized that Jesus answered him not a word. And the governor marveled. Let me tell you, Pontius Pilate didn't marvel at anybody. He'd seen it all. But he's jaw-dropped at Jesus. The guy's not begging for his life. He's not correcting what they're saying. I've never seen anything like this. He opened not his mouth, just like Isaiah predicted. So we did a series back in 2008. It was called uh, CSI Religion. And one of the weeks we talked about CSI Judaism. So I brought in a friend of mine named Stan Telchin. You can get this online if you want, on audio. Just type in Judaism or CSI Religion, you'll find it. And Stan was a very successful um, businessman. He was Jewish, culturally Jewish, has bar mitzvah, did all the Jewish things, uh, raised his daughter well, sent her off to college. She comes home from the first semester. She says, Dad, I'd like to talk to you just one-on-one when we get a chance. I said, oh, that's great. So they sit down, and, and she goes, Dad, i got something very exciting to share with you, but I think you're going to get mad. Honey, I couldn't get mad at you. If you're excited about something, I'm excited about it. So, Dad, this semester, as I've been studying, I have found our Messiah. And suddenly he realized, he said as he was telling the story, he says, I realized I've never studied the Torah a day in my life. I don't even know what the Messiah is supposed to be. Well, who is he? And she says, it's Jesus. And he gets furious. He writes a book called Betrayed. How could you turn your back on our family and our culture and everything? That's ridiculous. She goes, Dad, seriously, read Isaiah. Read Isaiah 53. They just ask God. And he says, I just, I'm so angry and so mad I pushed her away. But just to prove her wrong, I pulled out Isaiah 53. He says, because I realized I didn't know anything about our scriptures. I just practiced certain rituals. He says, I read Isaiah 53. And for the first time in my life, I went, that sounds a lot like what I've heard Jesus went through. But the one thing I know as a Jewish man is Jews do not believe in Jesus. So he set on a spiritual quest to read the Old Testament, what he called the Bible. And he kept reading the prophets, and he started seeing their predictions about Messiah. And he kept getting shocked that it was pointing towards someone born, living, ministering in the exact place Jesus did. He's now starting to get concerned that he's going to betray his culture and his religion. He's got a very successful business. He tells his secretary, I'm going to walk away from, from the business no calls, less emergency for six weeks. He's never taken a day off in his life. And you don't walk away from a business of his success. And she's shocked. This must be a huge family emergency. He spent six weeks reading the Bible to, to convince himself where he's headed was wrong and to convince his daughter where she already was at was wrong. And the more he read, the more evidence he collected, the more he realized Jesus was Messiah. What struck him the most is he came to the book of Acts, which is about the New Testament and Jesus' followers. He said, it's so Jewish. 
There's a Jewish Messiah. There's Jewish followers. They're celebrating Passover. They're going to Sukkot. They're going to temple. They go to mikvah. And he gets to Acts 15. And Acts 15 is called the Jewish Council. And a bunch of Jewish leaders of the Jewish movement of Jesus followers find out a couple Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have accepted Jesus. And they're having a town meeting to decide, is it okay for Gentiles to believe in our Jewish Messiah, Jesus? And Stan was like, head spun around. There was a time that Jesus was so our Messiah, we didn't know if we wanted to share him with the Gentiles. He got down in his office. If I remember, he got down on his knees and he said, God, I'm sorry I've been blind, but I see you and I accept you into my life. Because he looked at the evidence that pointed to Jesus. If you want to pick up his book, it's called Betrayed, or you can get online to our app and you can just look up CSI Religion. Powerful story. So he's silent. He gives us two more characteristics. (laughs) It gets crazier and crazier. If you were making this prediction at 500 BC, you would never put these threads together. He goes, oh yeah, oh and by the way, that Messiah that God's been planning the whole life, everything he's put together the whole life, all of history points toward, that servant, as we all know, is going to die. Say what? Yeah, he's going to die. He's going to be imprisoned, and then he's going to be deceased servant. But he has to do that because he's the offering. Huh? Here's how he says it. He, the servant, is going to be taken from prison. Jesus was imprisoned put before the Sanhedrin, and for judgment, Sanhedrin puts him in judgment the night before he's crucified, he will declare this generation, he was cut off from the land of the living. That's a fancy way of saying he died. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's dead. He's dead, Jim. Jim, he's dead. Dead. Jim, he's dead. He's dead, for all the Star Trek fans out there. Cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions, why is he cut off? Why is he dying? For the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. That's why this whole thing's going on. And then they made a grave with the wicked. He's crucified between two criminals. Just as Isaiah predicts, hundreds of years in advance. Then he says, besides, he's got a death with the wicked. However, with the rich will be his death. And we know that Jesus didn't have a tomb. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Which that sounds like a religious term used of religious people. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, historians have told us, was the richest man, he and Nicodemus, in all of Jerusalem. It would be like me saying today that you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett carried Jesus' body off the cross and let him borrow their, their mausoleum. If you're going to make a prediction in the New Testament, you wouldn't use these two names. But just like Isaiah says, Jesus, by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, is in his grave when he's raised. An incredibly wealthy grave that Jesus didn't own, and that's who gives him his grave with the wealthy, just like Isaiah predicted. Because he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, he didn't do anything wrong on his own, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, just like we said before. He has put him to grief, and just when you think it's over, just when you think he's dead, just when he's in the grave, we get a time word, when. And when you make his soul and offering to sin when he's died when he's in the grave he shall see his seed and then god will prolong his days i thought he was dead i thought he was in the grave yeah and then god's going to prolong his days raise him from the dead and the pleasure of the lord will prosper in his hand
See, this isn't like picking up a fortune cookie. Open it up. Your fortune is you will meet somebody today. I did. I met somebody today. Another one. There will be weather today. There was weather today. I mean, these are detailed, specific, 500 years in advance predictions down to the letter. Then he says, got one more thread I want to give you. And this is so amazing. He says, this servant is also going to be righteous. But not just like he lives righteous. He does live righteous. He is a righteous ATM machine. He gives out righteousness. He doesn't just cover your sins so you're out of debt, you're out of the red. No, no. He takes all his righteousness that's in his account and he deposits it in your account. So you're not only not, only not doing things wrong, you are now seen as fully righteous as the servant. That's why it's good news. No, no, no. You must have misspoke. Here's what he says. This is a righteous servant that will justify us. He will see the labor of his soul, what he went through, how he died. And God will be satisfied. That's why Jesus calls out at the end of his death, It is finished! Everything forgiven for all people at all time. It's satisfied. Do you ever struggle with forgiving other people? Or maybe you struggle with forgiving yourself. It sounds like this. You know, I've I, I, I beaten myself over that. Yeah, I'll never forgive what I did. You know, I'm just, I, I just got to, I know my parents forgive me. I know you forgive me. I know God forgives me, but I'll never forgive myself. Right? We hear that a lot. If you can hear it, it's a subtle form of pride. Because it says, what God says is satisfied, I say isn't. Yeah, Jesus died, and he was marred, and he was crucified. But you know what? My sins are so bad. My wrongdoing is so bad. What I did was so egregious that Jesus' sin almost satisfies. Jesus' death plus me beating myself up for one more week, one more month, one more year, one more decade, that will satisfy it. God is offering righteousness. You can know that everything you've done, past, present, and future, has been satisfied. And if you say, I can't forgive myself, I'm beating myself up over it, please look at Jesus on the cross. Please look at his face marred beyond recognition as a human being. Skin, hair ripped out of him, his beard. And ask yourself, was that not enough? What are you going to add by beating yourself up for one more week and one more month that's going to make Jesus' death that much better? No, there's an incredible gift here, friends, and the gift is God's righteousness is satisfied. And if you have trouble forgiving somebody else because they don't deserve it, because they did it again and again and again, you look at Jesus on the cross and you say, you know what? He forgave you when you didn't deserve it, when you did it again and again and again. When you wrap yourself up with his forgiveness, you can go and extend that to others. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that's this source of righteousness, will justify many. So the word justify, or the word justified, is often used by, by teachers to say, what does that word mean? It's just as if I'd, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. 
His covering, his forgiveness is so thorough, it's so extensive, it's so satisfactory to God that it covers everything. It's just as if I'd never sin in God's eyes. Whew! That's good news. That's why the Bible's called good news. He justifies us. He bore our iniquities. Therefore, having won the victory over death, having conquered the grave, he divides the spoil with us. He does all the work and we get the spoils. It's pretty sweet. I will divide him a portion with the great. And he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. This is why Christianity doesn't just say, God's your creator. He says there comes a moment in your time you have to say, God, you've been my creator. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to let you adopt me as my father. And he says, if you let me adopt you, I will be your father, and then you will become a joint heir with Christ. You're part of my royal family. You're part of the spoils of the strong and the mighty. Everything I own in the universe and then some is available to you as my child. Because my son was poured out to death. He was numbered with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressions. This Christmas season, what does it look like for you to wrap yourself up with his comforter? And what would that look like? Well, number one, you have to recognize you need wrapped up. I'm basically a good person. Unless I don't get what I want, then I'm kind of selfish. Do you honestly want to say before God, God, I need covered up. If you looked at my thoughts, if you looked at my secrets, I need covered up. That's the first step. Number two, I can't cover myself up. I have nothing adequate, not my good works, not my good deeds. Nothing about me is adequate to make up for what I've done wrong. So God, I need your comforter. I need your promises to wrap myself up in. The hardest thing to become a Christian is not only being saved from your bad works, to recognize how bad they are. The even more difficult thing to do is to be saved from your good works. Because you still think you could wrap yourself up with one more chance to help old ladies across the street. One more check you're going to write. It's going to make up for everything you've done wrong. But wrapping yourself up in his comfort is recognizing I need covered up and my good works don't cut it. And if you don't believe me, ask Jeremiah. He says your good works, every good thing you've ever done, every good day, all piled up. And he says that righteousness, your righteousness, is like filthy rags. And in Hebrew that means filthy menstrual rags. It's pretty graphic, but he wants you to know how inadequate we are at providing and wrapping ourselves up. I realize I need covered up. I realize he offers the covering, and then I say, I am a child of God, not based on what I did for God, but based on what he did for me. As I wrap myself up, I'm not only wrapping myself up with his forgiveness, I'm also wrapping myself up and not living in guilt and condemnation. I'm also looking, look at all the things he predicted hundreds of years in advance. I go, you know what, this world seems crazy. It seems out of control. It sure did during Babylon too. I'm wrapping myself to say God knows the future and God's got a plan. And even though everything seems crazy, I'm going to trust the same God who had things under control 2,000 years ago. And you wrap yourselves up when you get worried and anxious. You wrap yourself up with the promises that he can cleanse you. You remind yourself that he, he, he created you as a vineyard to provide. He's the child that's given. And in that, you recognize that God is with you. Emmanuel, God is with you. 
Whatever you're going to face tomorrow, this week, God is with you. What would it look like for you to be wrapped up in that? Look how generous God was to you. He sent his only begotten son to die a horrific death. But it pleased him to wound his son so that he could offer a personal adoption option and invitation to you. Have you ever accepted that invitation? Oh, and not you call yourself a Christian, not you go to church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian even more than driving into a garage makes you a car. You've got to accept the invitation and say, I want to be wrapped up. And maybe you're a Christian, but you have not been walking wrapped up in his forgiveness. You're still struggling with self-doubt. You're still struggling with, with self-hatred or non-forgiveness, and you're still struggling with forgiving other people. You haven't wrapped yourself up in what he provides. Let's do that now as a group. Let's pray. Maybe you just say, God, God, I need wrapped up. I'm not as good as I pretend to be. And God, I turn from my good works. I admit they're not going to cut it. And I wrap myself up with your righteousness provided by your son's death. And I accept your invitation to live the life of royalty in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.